Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Dialogue Out Loud series. I'm Taylor Petrie, editor of Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. Today, we're excited to have with us Christopher C. Smith, a historian who holds a PhD in religion from Claremont Graduate University and author of several excellent articles in Mormon studies. In his fascinating article, A People's History of Book of Mormon Archaeology, Excavating the Role of Folk Practitioners in the Emergence of a Field, Smith takes us on a fascinating journey through the early years of Book of Mormon archaeology, showing how professionals and folk practitioners sometimes collided over uh, the middle of the in the course of the middle of the 20th century. There were some really great stories here, and I'm super excited to talk to you, Chris, about this. So welcome. Yeah, thank you very much, Taylor. So Book of Mormon Archaeology, this is a contentious project. Uh, There are lots of artifacts and claims about objects popping up even in the 19th century. Can you walk us through briefly that history and what leads to the attempts to organize an academic field in this in this area? Sure. There's a there's a few like early efforts at Book of Mormon archaeology. I mean, in the 19th century, they're sort of reading some of the publications um, about Mesoamerican archaeology and they're making some connections to the Book of Mormon. And there's also in the very early 20th century, there is one effort to organize an expedition to South America to do some archaeological work down there. But um, Book of Mormon archaeology as an academic discipline actually really kicks off in the 1950s with an organization called the uh, New World Archaeological Foundation. And uh, they are trying to do Mesoamerican archaeology in order to prove the Book of Mormon true, essentially. That, that's sort of how it starts. Um, and then um, as it evolves, like fairly quickly within about a decade, I mean, it's brought the New World Archaeological Foundation is initially in like a nonprofit, a separate organization, um, but it's brought under the auspices of BYU. The church is kind of interested in controlling it um, and making sure that it's, academic and not embarrassing to the church. These these scholars are not making, for instance, theological claims that the church would find embarrassing, and also that they're not making scholarly claims that might embarrass um, Mormon academics in general. And so you have sort of, you have the very conservative church leaders who are interested in controlling it for the theological reasons, like Joseph, uh, Joseph uh, Fielding Smith, and then you also have the um, ones who are more concerned about the church's respectability, like maybe Howard Hunter, who are interested in controlling it so that uh, they make sure that it has the academic respectability. And um, in the very early period when they're doing uh, excavations, they're sort of exploring Mesoamerica because they don't know the area. And they hire a Mexican, they hire a number of Mexican guides. And one of those Mexican guides is one of the characters that I study in this paper. And also they are kind of interacting as they go along with people who claim to have discovered artifacts that are salient to Book of Mormon history. Um, And among those is my other main character in this essay, John Brewer who in um, the Manti, Utah area, is claiming to dig up a wealth of golden plates and inscribed stone artifacts and so forth that he claims are uh, Jaredite and Nephite artifacts. So we'll um, 
we'll, yeah. we'll get to some of these characters in a little bit more detail uh, in the course of our conversation. But it sounds like in these early days, you're telling the story that there are some enthusiasts who are really interested in sort of proving the Book of Mormon. The church has a vested interest in in supporting this kind of work. And at the same time, there are some eccentricities maybe among some of these early enthusiasts that the church is also interested in uh, controlling and tamping down in certain ways. And other LDS academics who are also potentially embarrassed by some of the uh, uh, these uh, outlandish claims that that uh, don't really square with a, with more, you know, solid ac- academic interpretations of the evidence that are also kind of bringing to bear on the way that this field is sort of being constrained and supported by the church at the same time. Is that is that a fair understanding? Yeah. And I think a big part of the story that I'm telling in this paper is that um, the way that we have traditionally told the story of Book of Mormon archaeology, we have emphasized on a few, um, I would say, respectable scholarly figures. Um, And what I'm trying to show is that, in fact, the the distinction that we have come to make between the scholarly figures and the enthusiasts is kind of a later distinction, and that in the early days of Book of Mormon archaeology, there was a very thin line, if any line at all, between the scholars and the enthusiasts. Um, In fact, the founder of the New World Archaeological Foundation, Thomas Ferguson, didn't have a PhD. He didn't have a master's degree. He had a bachelor's degree, and so he's doing this in sort of an amateur way. He gets help from Maxwell's Jakeman, who's a professor uh, at BYU. But like even the BYU professors who are involved are not like all Mesoamerica experts. Some of them have expertise in other fields and they're heavily involved in the, the New World Archaeological Foundation. And so it's kind of this cobbled together effort at the beginning Um, with people with a wide range of expertise and a wide range of different levels of respectability and different levels of connection to Mormon institutions. And it's only sort of as the the field develops in the first decade that you get some some of the sort of uh, less respectable figures getting pushed to the margin. You get the respectability categories sort of defined. You get kind of a social hierarchy within Book of Mormon archaeology and some people being pushed out entirely uh, who initially were like fairly actively involved and accepted in the in the discipline and in the field. That's such a, a useful uh, uh, approach to this as as uh, uh, as a good transition to thinking about some of the characters that you introduce us to here. So tell us about Jose, is it Davila? Yeah, yeah. And and uh, and Jesus Padilla, these two Mexican uh, uh, born uh, people who kind of get looped into this world a little bit. Tell tell us a little bit about who they are, and then you can tell us about uh, uh, how they get involved in in the archaeological side of this. Yeah, so Jose Davila, um, he was a bilingual Spanish English speaker, um, born in Tampico, Mexico. He was a mestizo, meaning mixed blood, um, Maya Indian, so half Maya um, Native American. And uh, he also uh, became, he he became a Latter-day Saint convert. Um, And in in the 1950s or so is what comes into the picture. Right. This is in the 1950s that he um, becomes a convert. And also... uh, 
from his early 20s, he was a, a Mexican tour guide, a licensed Mexican federal tour guide for archaeological sites. So he had a longstanding interest in archaeology. And so when he met this widow from Bountiful, Utah, and converted to her faith, to a great extent, he is doing that for archaeological reasons. He sees some some resemblances between what he's reading in the Book of Mormon and what he knows of archaeological sites in Mexico, and he's beginning to make connections. And he's a very intuitive thinker um, and makes, I would say, creative connections between the Book of Mormon and archaeological sites that might not really stand up to uh, like academic standards that we have today. But... Um, I think a lot of those academic standards were not really formed yet at the time that he was writing. I mean, we hadn't really deciphered Maya script at the time. So there was there were huge question marks around what these Maya sites signified. And so um, he was able to draw connections to the Book of Mormon that he felt were very persuasive and sort of prove the Book of Mormon true. And um, obviously, this is this is very intriguing to white scholars who are interested also at BYU in um, proving the Book of Mormon true. And so he is sort of an instant hit and a minor celebrity in Utah. He gets a fair amount of like newspaper coverage and very charismatic figure. Um, and the New World Archaeological Foundation brings him on as one of their guides as they're exploring Mesoamerica. And so he is leading them around and introducing them to a lot of archaeological sites and if you read some of the um, early works in Book of Mormon archaeology, particularly Milton R. Hunter, one of the uh, 70s presidents, um, goes on three archaeological trips, which he writes books about. And in those books, he essentially is um, guided on this tour by Davila and is repeating everything that Davila has told him. And he becomes a very influential figure in defining some of the early ideas about Book of Mormon archaeology. And he's getting a lot of his information from Davila. And so I suggest really Davila is a much more influential figure in um, early Book of Mormon archaeology than has been recognized. And he's also very interesting because he he um, invented the industry of um, Book of Mormon archaeology tours. And so even today, there is a, a minor industry in uh, the Tahuantepec Peninsula of these tour guides going around and uh, showing Mormon people archaeological sites and making connections to the Book of Mormon. And almost all of the tour guides who are still active there today descend in some way from Davila and learned the business from him because he invented this business. And it's sort of the the Mormon equivalent to the Holy Land tour that, uh, you know, all the Christians go on tours to Jerusalem and tour the Holy Land Bible sites. And, and Mormonism has its uh, its version of that in this Book of Mormon tour business that he invented. So tell us about uh, Padilla and how he fits into the story and how the two of them sort of get intertwined with some questions about Book of Mormon artifacts. Yeah, so Padilla meets a couple of uh, Mormon missionaries. He live, He's a Mexican. He lives in Mexico. And he tells them stories about um, archaeological sites that he's visited. They, they tell him the story of the Golden Plates. And they even show him a pamphlet with the Anthem transcript characters from the Book of Mormon. You know, that Joseph Smith is supposed to have copied some characters from the Book of Mormon. And uh, we still have what's called the Anthem Transcript, although it's probably actually not connected to the Book of Mormon at all, um, uh, as recently came out. But um, 
the uh, Padilla looks at these characters and he says, oh, these are just like the characters that I found on some golden plates on an archaeological expedition that I was on. And obviously the, the missionaries are very interested in this. They're very excited about this. And so they keep coming back to him and he, they you know, are pressing him, show us the plates that you found, show us the plates that you found. He always says, oh, they're in Mexico City. You know, somebody else has them at the moment. They're on loan somewhere. Um, but one day they come in and he has the plates in his vault. And so he goes and gets them and pulls them out and shows them, shows them to these missionaries. And there's uh, three, three little plates and they have hinges on the side. He says that he um, added the hinges in order to turn it into a necklace for his wife. And so the missionaries then... Uh, about Just to give us some context, about how big are these? What are... They're really small. They're like postage stamp sized. They're adorable. There's still photographs of them on the internet. You can look them up. Or just Google Padilla plates if you're interested. Uh, they're really cool looking. I mean, um, I, I happen to think that Padilla created them himself, but he, if he did so, he was really an artist and, and did a beautiful job. Um, the the missionaries then get in contact with BYU, and the people at BYU are kind of like, oh, we're not sure if this is real. Maybe you shouldn't. Uh, maybe you shouldn't follow up on this. Um, well, Jose Davila gets wind of this and he goes down and tries to buy the plates from Padilla. And um, there's some dispute over what exactly happened there, but probably Davila um, purchased them from Padilla and then Padilla later claimed that he had only uh, rented them. So that they're, you know, disputing ownership, whether it was a lease or whether it was a purchase. Well, Davila then... Um, gets the plates into the United States, which if they're authentic uh, artifacts, it's actually illegal for him to bring them into the United States. And he had tried to donate them to the church and the church didn't really want anything to do with it because of those legalities. You know, it would have been illegal for them to take possession of them. Um, and so he instead goes to BYU and has scholars at BYU look at these plates um, and they're trying to do authentication of the plates which leads to a um, really interesting exchange between Davila and his allies and scholars at BYU, uh, notably led by Ray Matheny, who was kind of like, uh, I would say like the debunker, the star debunker at BYU. Very skeptical figure. I mean, faithful Mormon, but um, really skeptical about claims like this. And um, he you know, I would say fairly resoundingly debunked the authenticity of these artifacts, both based on material grounds and based on sort of um, inconsistencies in the stories that Padilla told different people about the plates. Um, and Davila was very offended by this. Um, and so the, the plates have continued in, I would say, like folk archaeological circles to be cited as a proof of the Book of Mormon. But in the official academic circles at that point, Davila is pushed out and Davila's allies are also pushed out and these plates are considered inauthentic after that point. So that that's really where the breach happens between the folk archaeologists. We, we create this category of the folk and also this separate category of like the official or the academic or the scholarly or the scientific, you know. And so, and so there's that's where that respectability gap between the two comes from. 
So it's as you as you unpack this story, it's really with this object that sort of marks the turn in Davila's own reputation, and as you say, this sort of assertion of authority of the of the academic over the amateur as the as the sort of true final arbiter of uh, of Book of Mormon artifacts, right? Um, and and that happens relatively late in this process. Again, this is a couple of decades into. Uh, uh, the Book of Mormon archaeology project that the church had kind of backed here. Is that is that about right? I think it's in the 1970s. Is that right? Yeah. Well, it's uh, I, I think it's the 1960s oh, that um, this happens. Um, but um, that the the really remarkable thing is, yeah, Davila had you know led tours for the New World Archaeological Foundation. He'd given lectures at BYU. I mean, he really was a, a fairly respected figure in part because of his credentials as a Mexican tour guide um, up to this point. And then, yeah, there's this break where all of a sudden he's no longer considered credible by the people at BYU. And that then leads to a sort of cascade of other um, things where he's sort of progressively becoming more and more a marginal figure. Um, he's involved in some expeditions where he's accused of looting. He uh, is accused in Mexico and goes to prison for a while of um, uh, being involved in artifact smuggling connected with these Padilla plates, you know, that he took illegally out of the country. Um he is also involved in some digs in Fillmore, Utah, where some people are helping him dig at an archaeological site that he claims is um, uh, a place where the Angel Moroni buried some golden plates. And uh, a couple of people die because they're using dynamite underground and there's a dispute over the mining claims. And they're trying at the last minute to get to the plates before the sheriff comes and kicks them off the property. And so they use a huge amount of dynamite and then they go down in the uh, the cave too quickly and they suffocate to death because of carbon monoxide gas that's still lingering from the dynamite. Um, and so this, you know, obviously this is not good for Davila's reputation and he sort of returns to Mexico um, in dishonor, um, as a result of all of that. And, and so there's a sort of cascading, like once you lose respectability, um, it can become a chain reaction where you become even less respectable over time. Well, and as you know, you know, even after some of these catastrophes or the early on, you know, the Padilla plates, people are still reaching out to him. He still has a following. He still has credibility. And there is a kind of you know, counter movement to say maybe the this guy has more authority than the academics, right? And uh, among even American saints, so really interesting dynamics of what's going on here. And this this I guess is another uh, uh, entry point to the other major figure that you introduce us to, John Brewer from Manti, uh, from Manti, Utah. Uh, tell us a little bit about his story. Yeah, so I don't know if he and Jose Davila ever met, but they were very much associated with all the same people. And so you're right, like they they together they sort of spawned this separate alternative establishment that has its own ideas about Book of Mormon archaeology and wants, for instance, to say that like there are a lot of authentic Nephite and Jaredite archaeological sites in Utah. And this group is still active today. They hold a, an annual powwow um 
and it's called the Morgan Powwow. And Terry Carter is a very prominent figure in the movement today and has sort of been a major popularizer of both the John Brewer and Davila stories. Um, and you can find his YouTube videos on the subject if you're interested in exploring this more. As positive uh, as positive stories, not right. the negative. Yeah, as respect. Right, yeah. Yeah, he, yeah, he he promotes them as authentic. Um, there's also a Utana Bishop, or uh, sorry, Utana Jessup goes around and also gives um, lectures to to Latter Day Saints, arguing that the Brewer story is sort of proof of the Book of Mormon. Um, so the the Brewer story is that uh, I mean that it gets told differently at different times, um, but initially he discovers a limestone tablet. Um, that gets taken to the University of Utah. Professor Jesse Jennings at the University of Utah is involved in authenticating this limestone tablet and concludes that it is a forgery. Um, but the way that Brewer tells his story is different. He um, sort of in, in this journal that has circulated, he narrates how um, he knew a Native American person who showed him where to find some arrowheads. And so Brewer was hunting around for arrowheads. And then as he was digging for arrowheads, he broke into an underground chamber, uh, steps leading down, and he discovered in this chamber two giant crypts with um, mummies inside of them. One had red hair and one had blonde hair. And uh, the way that he describes them makes it sound like these are Jaredite giants, like they're eight feet tall. Um, they have like rod swords and shields, you know, like steel weapons and implements. And they're also buried surrounded by many, many stone boxes containing golden and lead and copper inscribed metal plates uh, that um, he claims are, you know, Nephite and Jaredite writing. And uh, he also describes having met the angel Ether and um, he's discovered other uh, caverns. There's a, like a map that he has to put together like puzzle pieces. It's like different pieces of stone um, inscribed with, uh, you know, writing. And then he, as he sort of assembles them like a puzzle, he discovers, oh, this is a map to other locations where there are treasures in Utah. And so he spends a lot of time hunting around for other treasures. Um, and he actually like gains quite a bit of attention from the church authorities. So there's a, a professor at BYU, Paul Chessman, who is very interested in this story, believes that it's true and wants to acquire the land where Brewer has discovered this cave. Um, and he then sells the story to a number of church leaders, um, including Joseph Fielding Smith. Uh, and they are very interested in purchasing the land um, and so they, they actually are in communication with Brewer over the course of like over a decade about, uh, you know, trying to get control of the site, trying to get BYU archaeologists in there to validate his findings. Um, and, uh, he sort of delays them progressively and doesn't tell anybody where the cave is, doesn't tell anybody, you know, how to, how to find it. And then he eventually dies without ever having revealed it to anyone. Um, and so to this day, there's this mystery around, um, you know, where where is the cave? Nobody ever, he, uh, he never told anybody where to find it. And so there's still people out there looking for Brewer's Cave, even to this day. 
So this is another interesting example where it's not the scholars versus the folks, uh, the, the folk archaeologists, right? It's actually the scholars and the folk archaeologists are kind of buying into this. And then very senior church leaders are buying into this story as well. And as you say, for many, many years. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, so uh, again, you're kind of like doing this interesting thing of blurring the boundaries between these supposedly experts and the uh the non-experts here um so where does these are such juicy stories and i encourage everybody to read them they were so good and i just hung on every word and every twist and turn of them um but what do you think these stories tell us besides the kind of juicy gossip about who fell for what you know uh fraud back in the day yeah so i think that uh for me um Part of it is about like social class and just the fact that like academics, I mean, it, it would be easy to say like, well, Brewer had a financial interest in, you know, promoting these plates, but the academics had their own financial and professional interest too, because they have to sort of establish their own respectability with other academics. And so I think you, you have to, if you're going to say like these are frauds, you can't do it based on the fact that like Brewer and Davila aren't credible. You have to do it based on the evidence um, because everybody here has complicated motives and it's not easy to, you know, um, say this is a folk archaeologist and this is a professional archaeologist based purely on your analysis of their motives, you know. So so I think like there's there's some things there's some takeaways in terms of like power dynamics and social class and academia that like we're not 100% um, objective even in academia and like maybe the folk categories and the professional categories are not so much like real categories maybe to some extent those are social constructions you know and and I get into like how even the professional academics are telling stories that in terms of the definition of folklore that we use in folklore studies like the stories that the professional academics are telling are also folklore you know, um, there's one academic who finds a napkin in Manti, Utah at a restaurant that has cattle brands on it. And he goes, well, look, it's the same characters on the cattle brands that, you know, were on the plates. And so Brewer obviously just plagiarized the cattle brands. And I actually found that napkin in the BYU archives and I got to hold the napkin. It was so cool to hold because it was connected to this story that's like a really punchy, fun story. But actually, like, I don't think that there's any evidence that those cattle brands were the source of the characters on the plates. You know, this is just like a, another fun story that somebody told. But in this case, it's a professional academic who's telling it. And so, like, to me, it's it's not always clear where the line between folklore and professional should be drawn. And I think we we negotiate those boundaries as a community and as a society and those are not like real boundaries that we discover they're boundaries that we create and so that's that's one big takeaway and the other big takeaway is that like i think that we underestimate things like the sense of adventure in religion i think that um there's a lot of people who are seeking the sense of adventure in religion um and that can be incredibly powerful and also there's this constant impulse in religion where institutions are sort of becoming bureaucracies, they're solidifying, they're creating routines, they're cre creating, you know, respectable order. And that works really in an opposite direction to the charismatic aspects like the prophetic and the miraculous. 
Um, and so there's always sort of these two impulses in religion that are pulling in opposite directions where the institutions are becoming more rigid. And then you get like creative or charismatic figures who are innovating and often spinning off new movements. And I think that we can see this dynamic between the folk and the professional as an example of that, where, you know, these they came in, Brewer and Davila came in as revitalizers, trying to bring back the charismatic aspects of Mormonism. Um, and they get rejected by the institution, um, which ironically, what they were doing was not that different from what Joseph Smith did. And that's something that they continually highlighted was we're just doing what Joseph Smith did. And um, and the institution rejects them for that, you know, because the institution has become sort of more rigid and hierarchical and bureaucratic. And I, I don't think that Joseph Smith would find a place in the Latter-day Saint church as it is today. You know, I think he probably would be rejected right along with Brewer and Davila. And so completely apart from the questions of who are the true academics and archaeologists, you also can ask the question of who are the true Latter-day Saints. And I think that is sort of an equally open question in this story. Um, and if you approach it, uh, you know, from a neutral perspective, you might find a lot of reason to believe that actually Brewer and Davila are sort of the truer Latter-day Saints in terms of like faithfulness to the, the origins of the tradition, the origin stories of the tradition. Um, and, and so I think, uh, you know, on, on both sides, like, I just want to, I want to, if not increase the respectability of these figures, then at least like raise them up as, to say, like, here are these figures who challenge a lot of our assumptions about the categories in the world, you know, these social categories that we take for granted actually are fuzzier and more socially constructed than we tend to think. Thank you so much for joining me today, Chris. It's such a pleasure to talk to you about your research, and uh, I, I, I'm just really excited about it. Uh, we hope that our listeners have enjoyed the conversation and have learned something new about Book of Mormon archaeology. If you'd like to learn more, check out Christopher C. Smith, A People's History of Book of Mormon Archaeology, Excavating the Role of Folk Practitioners in the Emergence of a Field in the Fall 2023 issue of Dialogue and explore other resources on this topic there as well. To our listeners, thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues, and don't forget to leave a review and get in touch with us about any comments or questions. We hope that you'll tune in for future episodes of the podcast. And please subscribe and rate the show, and be sure to check out the whole range of shows in the Dialogue Podcast Network. Welcome to Bristlecombe Firesides, casual conversation around a virtual fireside where we discuss faith, the earth, the universe, and everything. We are your hosts, Abby and Madison. The central question we ask each other, as well as poets, artists, activists, and other guests around our virtual fireside, is what does it mean to belong to the earth? So if you've ever wondered how to reground your faith and spiritual practice in the stuff of the earth, this is the podcast for you. Catch up on previous seasons by subscribing to Bristlecombe Firesides on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. From the Aspen Mountains, Juniper Forests, Red Rock Deserts, and Salty Lakes of Utah, we wish you peace and goodness as you strive to find yourself in the family of the earth.
Dialogue Podcast Network.